Hey there, this is Liz Lash, and you're listening to Entering the Bar, a podcast on life and the law. Us lawyers may have passed the bar, but at the end of the day, we often find ourselves entering the bar, not only to relax, but to fetch about clients, cases, and the like. What's it like to live life as a lawyer? That's what we're here to talk about. And since we're lawyers, here's your first disclaimer. We're not here to give you legal advice. And welcome to the next episode of Entering the Bar with Liz Lash, A Life in the Law. On the show today, we have Barbara Hoffman, art lawyer extraordinaire. Barbara, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you for joining me. So Barbara is a real expert in the field, having been in this, I think, since... um, the 70s? That's correct. Wow. Um, so, Barbara, um, you know, you're, you're widely known. I was at the Fashion Institute on Friday, and they knew your name. They knew of you, if they didn't know you. Um, so, you know, tell us about uh, your background and how you what, – what, what do you currently do as an – what is an art lawyer? <laughs> well, it, it's um... – an extremely interesting profession, which I love. Um, And it's very diverse. I think I'm the kind of person that likes to enter every project that I do with great passion. And I have a low tolerance for doing routine, mundane matters. Mm. That's why art law is so interesting because I never know what's going to come across my desk on any given day. Mm. Most of the work that I do is really intellectually challenging. And more important, I think most of the work that I do really is something that is contributing to the benefit particularly of artists and in a general way, to the benefit of society, because I believe that the arts are an extraordinarily important component of cultural well-being. Absolutely. And a society that protects its artists and values art is one that invariably will be a much kinder, more humane society. So having said that, in great generalities, what does that actually mean? What do I do? (laughs) Yes, please tell me. (laughs) Well, for example, I do a lot of work in the area of copyright and intellectual property, and that was my main focus as an art lawyer originally. I um, represented many artists in protecting their intellectual property, which means basically controlling their right to reproduce it, the right to make derivative works, and the right to um, protect the integrity of those works under the moral rights doctrine. And particularly now, the with the Internet, the issue of protecting an artist's copyrights is much more prevalent, so that even though the same traditional principles apply to copyright, so the courts have said, the opportunities for unauthorized copying are much greater. So I can contrast, and this might be more than you want at this point, but I can in fact contrast two very precedent-setting cases that I... Um, did in the copyright area on behalf of artists, both of which had the uh, ability and did change the way industries work. The first case um, what transformed the way the film industry works. Oh. So, for example, that case, which is called Ringgold versus BET, 
involved the use of an artist's artwork uh-huh. in a TV sitcom. And Faith Ringgold is a very well-known, prominent African-American artist who does do a lot of licensing of her artwork. The original artwork called Church Picnic uh-huh. was in the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. And some had called it and it appeared at that time in an art magazine, which was very helpful to us, as one of the ten magnets that drew people to art museums. Wow. And Faith's work was listed along with Monet and Van Oh, my Gogh. goodness. What did, what did her work look like? Uh, well, I mean, of, of course, obviously, it was an extraordinarily important uh, um, aspect of, of our success at, in appeal on the case. And her work was... Uh-huh a church picnic, a quilt that was um, a church picnic um, of an African-American church picnic with people outdoors. And the original artwork was, in fact, the magnet for the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. But the particular artwork in question was a reproduction which had been licensed by Faith, a poster that was sold by the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. And the... High Museum, uh, the somebody, a set designer <coughs> for the film, uh-huh. had in fact purchased someplace or found this poster yeah. and placed it on the empty wall of a church where the last scene of the sitcom was taking place. So you had parishioners in this uh, simple, uh, more or less one-room church. Uh-huh. With one artwork, the poster on the wall, oh. and it appeared in nine different shots in this last five minutes of the sitcom Interesting. for no more than 29 seconds in total. Oh, that's a very short period of time. It it was but we prevailed i it, it when i look back it was in fact uh, a short time in any event mm-hmm. faith lost in the district court as uh-huh. we knew she would the district court judge said the use was de minimis and fleeting and based on a number of precedents that existed in the district courts uh-huh. Art had not been treated in the same way as music. If you know, if you had used "Happy Birthday," the ASCAP and BMI were suing people for, for even using an old jingle like that. Interesting. But um, art in film was treated differently, uh-huh. and unless the very work was the subject of the film, for example, if a chair was featured and you would, and, and, and that was the principal attraction in the film, you might be able to prevail. Interesting. But a use that was incidental, as in this case where it was simply set dressing. Okay. Had not been held to be an infringing use. It was considered de minimis. Interesting. And, and, and those- let me just stop you for a second for the people who might not be lawyers on on listening. Um, what is de minimis? De minimis means it's it? too little, too little to really rise to the level of a right that you can assert under I copyright. That see. it wasn't really considered a reproduction that would interfere uh-huh. with the copyright owner's right to control the display of the work or the reproduction of the work or the distribution of the work or the creation of derivative works, which are all copyright owners' rights. So it didn't, it wasn't important enough. De minimis is, means it's not important enough. But okay. those cases were wrong and they had never been appealed because the artists were either representing themselves in oh, the district boy. court <laughs> or they had lawyers who didn't know copyright law or they had lawyers who could not afford to proceed to an appeal right so Often for whatever reason there were all these very poor precedents mm-hmm. and we lost also in the district court oh. and the arguments 
of the lawyers for HBO uh-huh. and BET were amazing. You know, they were relying on the de minimis uh, argument. And if it wasn't de minimis, it would be fair use, which is another argument that is very popular if it's an unauthorized use. But fair use means you're commenting on it or criticizing it in some way. Right. You're not just using it as backdrop. Exactly, as backdrop or because it appeals to you or for whatever reason. Right. And I think a lot of people misunderstand fair use just as a side yes. comment. Yeah. And so when we appealed, we were lucky, as I said, because we had that article come out which talked about the work as being um, a magnet and as uh, popular as the irises. Uh-huh. That um, helped us attack the HBO's lawyers' argument that all HBO took were a couple of black folks dancing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and therefore, what they took really was, uh, I don't know what the argument was. It wasn't important. It was an idea because yeah. ideas are not protected under the copyright law. Right. Uh, or that it was factual. Facts are not protected. Right. But they didn't take, quote, artistic expression and therefore... This should not be a copyright infringement. And, and, the, and just to stop you, Barbara, what what year was this? Nineteen ninety six. Interesting. So this this was fairly recently. Yes. In in in, in legal history. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so the judge, which I think is an interesting argument, you know, made an interesting comment in mm-hmm. the decision, which basically rejected all of the arguments of HBO and found that it was copyright infringement. But I I always find it quite amusing in his decision when he said, HBO argues that all they took were a couple of black folks dancing. Wow. <laughs> That's the equivalent of an argument that says if you took the Mona Lisa, all you took was a lady with a smile. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, the Mona Lisa is no longer in copyright, as people know, when they see Duchamp mustache on the Mona Lisa Uh because, obviously, it's by da Vinci and it's way too long ago. Copyright is currently the life of the author plus 70 years. So obviously it was a reference to the analogy, but not to the fact that Leonardo had copyright that would be protected if they had taken the Mona Lisa. (laughs) So that was a very important case because it actually established for artists Mm -hmm. the right to have their works licensed And on a daily basis, I get requests from film companies who want to license my client's artwork for use in film. The message of the decision in the Second Circuit, Mm -hmm. which is one level below the Supreme Court, which hasn't ever been challenged, is that when you use an artist's work for the exact purpose that it was created, and that artist has a licensing business for that work, then it's copyright infringement, and it will not be fair use. Interesting. And so that that's really a groundbreaking precedent a groundbreaking for, for artists. precedent in a very, very interesting case. And I'm doing similar cases for art, artists on a on a regular basis involving copyright infringements and litigation when I have to, uh, to protect their interests. And and so the right of the artist is very important to you, right? I know you've said to me, um, you're, you consider yourself an artist as well. Yeah. You're creative in your approach to, I I consider myself, I consider myself to have an artistic creative temperament. 
Yeah. I, I would not say that I am an artist in the sense of being a visual <laughs> artist, knowing the artists that I work with. But yeah. I was going to bring you fast forward to a more recent case, which shows the changes um, and what has interested me in pursuing um, two other areas, which I do on a regular basis for artist rights. Mm. Um, the second case is a case that involved the use of photographs on the internet and the posting of those photographs. I represented a photographer, a Haitian photographer, oh. in a groundbreaking case called Agence France, France Press versus Morel. Daniel Morel was the photographer. Ah, okay. It may seem strange that Agence France Press is suing my client, yes. uh, Daniel Morel, when we are asserting his rights. It wasn't one of the many legal faux pas of the Agence France Press legal team to sue my client. They assumed that because he was Haitian and a Haitian photographer and the only one who did the groundbreaking photographs of the Haitian earthquake in the first 12 hours after the earthquake, that he was an impoverished person, and they tried to think that he was a citizen journalist or argue that he was a citizen journalist, thus devaluing his images. More importantly, their theory was that because he had posted the images on TwitPic through Twitter, that they had an implied license to distribute these images all over the world oh. without paying him. Oh. And through their licensee in the United States, mm -hmm. Getty Images. So Mr. Morell's photographs were all over the front pages of the New York Times. Oh, wow. They were in the General Assembly behind uh, at the UN when they were talking about the earthquake. They were in Times Square. Oh, my goodness. They were behind Obama on ABC. Wow. They were on CNN. And all this happened because he posted his photographs on 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 Twitter. You exactly. said, and, exactly. and then they picked it up from there. And this is what happened. And exactly. He said, oh my God! Somebody's using my photo. Everybody's right. using my photographs. Exactly. I should be paid, right? That's yes. what happened. And some of the arguments were we won on this. So they, we were right. Mr. Mor uh, Mr. Morrell uh, came to me because I'm well known for defending photographers' rights. And he, at the time, he hadn't registered the images for copyright protection. The images are protected under copyright law, whether you register them with the copyright office or not. But if they're registered before an infringement, you have the right to attorney's fees and what are called statutory damages, which often are much greater than your ability to prove actual damages. Right. But there's also another exception, which is oh. a three-month window. So if the infringement occurs within three months after you've taken the photographs, uh -huh. you can still register them and have all of those advantages. Oh, really? So, yes. I didn't know and that. so, well, there you are. <laughs> and so, and it's done simply to protect people who are authors and artists, so that they don't have to run and post something to the copyright office the second they create it. Right, because what artist is thinking about running to the copyright office? Right, after and it also works something. sometimes yeah. when you have people who are in your studio, for example, who might be working for you uh, and then copy your work. Ooh. It could happen. Yeah, then uh, it I'm sure and, it has. Yeah. They could copy it and post something within a week, and there you right. would be without knowledge of it and without uh, the ability to get statutory damages. So you have a three-month window, so I was able to register all of the images taken in the first 12 hours for Mr. Morrell with the Copyright Office, which enabled us to get 
the possibility to get statutory damages for each infringing work. Ah. Um, not actual damages are based on the number of times that work is reproduced, uh-huh. but statutory damages are limited to each image that's okay. infringed. But in this case, the number of images was eight, so that was quite a substantial number. How much was the, the ballpark? The, well, it, at the, the end of the day, and and I, I'm, let me just so, oh, sure. so 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 we were writing to um, we were writing to all of. Getty Images and Agence France Press's customers, including the Jehovah's Witnesses, the UN, the Clinton Foundation, all of these people who we traced had gotten their images from, illegally from these unauthorized uh, agencies. And so Agence France Press sued Daniel for interfering with their commercial relationships, commercial disparagement. And, of course, the lawyer hadn't researched the fact that that particular claim Uh doesn't exist in copyright. Really? Because if it did, Mm -hmm. then anybody who legitimately had a gripe about somebody misusing or using their copyright without their permission, mm-hmm. the images, would have a risk that they could be sued for exactly... Oh, for using their own images? No, not oh. their images, but okay. when somebody else would be using their yeah. images, they would have a risk that they could be sued Oh, by Agence France Press or the pirate oh. for commercial interference. So that doesn't exist as a claim. And when they filed the complaint against Uh us, that was good for us because we sent out a press release that said, Agence France Press, Pirates Images, then sues Haitian photographer. Which was picked up by everybody. Oh, and of I'm course, sure. <laughs> in addition to saving us filing fees because we didn't have oh, to right. pay two hundred dollars to file a complaint, since it doesn't cost to respond. Right, and right. that's when we filed an eighty-three page counterclaim, which just means you sue back against Agence France Pet Press, Getty Images, CBS, ABC, and CNN. Yeah, and wow. we ended up settling for undisclosed amounts, oh, which are okay. confidential, with ABC, CBS, and CNN. Uh-huh. However, Agence France Press and Getty Images refused to acknowledge that they didn't have a license, that the infringements were willful based on the evidence that we presented, mm-hmm. and spent two years litigating. Wow. And at the end of the day, uh, had to pay a million five hundred thousand dollars, which was the maximum amount of statutory damages after a jury trial to Mr. Morrell. Wow. So that case established that posting images on the internet doesn't necessarily give somebody else the right to use those images. And that, notwithstanding that many people think that once something is on the internet, it's free, <laughs> that's not the case at all. Right. Right. And even more important, the case established that you need to read the terms of service. It was the first case dealing with internet terms of service. Uh-huh. And at the end, it involved what the Twitter TwitPic terms of service permitted Agence France Press to do. I see. And what it permitted them to do was not to use these images for commercial use outside of the the limited private network of Twitter and Twitterpick. And in other words, you couldn't license these images and sell them worldwide. Yeah, which which absolutely makes sense. Yeah. So it was a really important case. Again, 
on behalf of photographers, and I'm still doing those cases mm -hmm. against infringers right. again. Right. And, and that's way. why it's important to understand not only the terms of service, but the license, right? If you're using a piece of music or, um, a, you know, a poster or visual art, you have to know, you know, everybody hears about Creative Commons, you know, in terms of using this, but you have to really understand the types of licenses there are. That's right. right. And even yeah. Creative Commons is the license terms require you to give credit to the source of where you have them. It's not what we would call the public domain. Mm -hmm. The public domain is when copyright is no longer in existence or it has been lost for some reason. And in, when something is in the public domain, obviously it has no restrictions and anybody can use it right. without any restrictions whatsoever. So those are important cases, and those are an important part of, of my practice. Yeah. Interestingly, I also uh, represent filmmakers and uh, artists who want to have the use of other uh, people's images. Oh. <laughs> Everybody always wears two hats. But I think that those are adequately protected by the doctrine of fair use mm -hmm. and a um, an understanding of how that's applied and that there are legitimate fair mm -hmm. uses where you are commenting on the image itself and not trying to replace it in uh. any way, which is essentially what the four factors of fair use when they're applied are meant to do. Interesting. And what what are the fair, four factors? The of fair four use? factors of fair use. The first factor is the um, what the secondary work is is meant to do with the first work. So, uh -huh. if the intent of the second use, which is using that image, is what the courts call transformative, uh -huh. something that is meant to enhance uh, or for social criticism, parody, or comment, that meets the, is a plus factor. It would be on the side of the second user if you're analyzing the four factors of fair use. So the buzzword has been transformative. Transformative. Okay. And so I have heard that before. uses that are seen to be transformative fall on the side of the secondary user, or the alleged pirate ah, okay. of the work. Well, how, did, how does that work? Because I'm, I'm well, for to example, that. Um, one of the most um, interesting fair use cases recently that was uh -huh. decided by the Second Circuit was the case of Richard Prince, who has often been sued for appropriating other artist's work. Richard Prince. I'm trying to remember Richard what Richard Prince he's is done. an artist. What Richard Prince did, and this is a very um, well-known case, Richard Prince did a series of works that were based on a, they were images of Rastafarians uh -huh. that were, yes, Rasta, that were being sold at the Gagosian Gallery. Oh. And the images that were used by Richard Prince uh -huh. were the images from a photographer, a photojournalist named Patrick Carew. And Patrick Carew had lived in Jamaica with the Rastafarians, studying them, and did all these photographs which came out in a book. And Richard Prince essentially took those photographs and blew them up and then added dots on them oh. or different colors uh -huh. or other other elements. To, yeah. But the photographs were quite recognizable as Patrick 
Carews. Oh, interesting. And, of course, reproducing the works and creating derivative works is a right of the copyright owner. So if it was not fair use, Mm -hmm. then it would be copyright infringement. Ah. So the district court judge, applying what I thought was the correct precedent Uh from the Supreme Court, said that this wasn't commenting on the images. The second factor is the nature of the first work. And if it's highly creative, it gets a plus. (laughs) (laughs) So in this case, the first work, which is Carew's work, Uh was highly creative. So the two factors fell on his side. Uh The third factor is the amount of the work that it's used. Right. Essentially, Richard Prince took all of the work. So that factor, oh again, fell on the side of Carew. Right. And then the fourth factor was whether or not the images, whether it hurt the market mm-hmm. for um, Carew's work. And I can't remember exactly, but I believe that the district court said that it did affect his market for licensing. I'm sure. Well, it's not clear. But anyway, I I don't remember. Yeah. But in that case, there would have been all four factors in a balancing which fell on the side of the photographer, Carew, which means that it would not have been fair use and therefore copyright infringement. Ah. So... That's a good explanation. And so it's appealed to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh-huh. And the Second Circuit Court, which is the same court that, that heard um, the uh, Faith Ringgold case, and it was Gagosian, Richard Prince, and they had friends of the court, all the museums filing uh. these... Um, friends of the court briefs. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, the message of that case was fair use in a sometimes depends on having a really good lawyer <laughs> and right. having a lot of money and yeah. power on your side. Because yeah. for me, that case was a um, might makes right. I thought the district court's decision mm-hmm. was correct. But the Second Circuit said that it was fair use. And the uh, reason they said it was fair use was that they found that at least, I think only eight, six works weren't transformative, but the other works were transformative because Richard Prince was somehow commenting on, on Patrick Carew's work, mm. that he wasn't using it for the same purpose as Carew. And what was really quite amazing is that Richard Prince wasn't properly educated by his lawyers at the lower court level. So when they took his uh, testimony before the trial as to whether or not this was fair use, what he should have been prepared based on prior cases, for example, against Jeff Koons by artists and uh by oh. a, a, a photographer, that in order to be transformative, you're mm-hmm. doing a much better job if you're purporting to comment on the work right. and why you took it, why right. why you had to use this work instead of just using it. But Richard Prince, being rather arrogant, when asked, why did you use this work instead of coming up with something about, I mean, I suppose he was being honest. He was under oath, but he, he did say, I just liked it. I can use whatever I want. Oh my God. So the the lawyers on appeal had to, the lawyers on appeal had to um, really deal creatively with a record yeah, it doesn't that sound was like totally a unfavorable yeah. to them, and they did so quite brilliantly. And at the end of the day, the essentially the appellate court found that the use was transformative, mm. that that this didn't interfere with 
Carew's Market. He was selling books. He probably wasn't going to license these works to be used by an artist in the gallery. I mean, a variety of reasons which leave a person contemplating using another artist's images if uh, in in a somewhat confused state. It, that is difficult it sounds like to they predict split the now. baby, you know, and a little so bit on that. It's yeah. it's still a, a gray area if okay. somebody is trying to argue it. In any event, fair that's use. fair use. That's a great explanation. And I'll tell you one other thing. In film, which uh-huh. is on the other side, yeah. when I represent filmmakers, documentary filmmakers use many, many images and the term to not get permission of the original for the original use of the image in a documentary as opposed to a sitcom or a, f- a feature film is to fair use of film. No. <laughs> that, means, that means you're not getting any permissions and you're going to take your chance. Oh, boy. And there, ha- there have been a number of favorable decisions that actually have, in fact, supported uh, documentary filmmakers who do use archa- archival uh. Uh, images in creating films to... Uh, constitute fair use because, in general, documentaries commenting on some sort of issue is exactly that kind of the underlying and it, it newsworthy, and et cetera, uh, et cetera. So it's a, it's an it's a um, it's a, it's a, a very interesting area yeah. and and a challenging one that I really like. Yeah. So, Barbara, uh, how did you get into art law? You have a very interesting had a very interesting career. So, how did how did you get into that originally? I went to law school uh, after living in Paris uh, in very (laughs) (laughs) yes in 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 in, uh, 1968, which was the time of revolutionary practices, and I was inspired to go to law school because of uh, social justice and civil rights issues. And that is why I went left Paris and came back to New York ah. to attend law school. And uh, I graduated and, in fact, was doing race and sex discrimination mm-hmm. cases uh, in the city of New York on the side of the person who, who had been discriminated against, mm-hmm. not on defending the discriminator, and uh, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts Organization was just starting. It had just been created by a group of public interest lawyers. And uh, I joined that organization as a volunteer lawyer in my last year of law school, which I could do, and began counseling artists. Wow, so right from the start. Yes, and yeah. I enjoyed it very much because I had majored in art history uh-huh. and French, and what felt very and had studied at the Art Students League. So I particularly like representing and working with creative people. Mm-hmm. And my favorite course in law school was copyright, which involved the speech by Martin Luther King, the "I Had a Dream" speech, oh. and, and I, that was to me the most interesting case I had in law school. So uh, this sort of fit naturally. And then three years later, I was recruited to be a law professor in Seattle. And uh, I thought I would join the volunteer lawyers for the arts in Seattle, but there wasn't one. So I started a statewide agency and ran an art law clinic at our law school for the students. Yes. And I remember you saying to me, actually, it was kind of a funny story about with volunteer lawyers for the arts, right? About somebody who you counseled originally. Oh yes. So the when I moved back to New York, uh, I tried to leave volunteer lawyers for the arts in in stable condition and have mm-hmm. it continue on with without my uh, being the chair of the board uh, for ten years, and. Many years later, actually five years ago, 
I wrote an article in the New York Law Journal, and I was contacted by a lawyer who it turns out actually had been somebody that I had consulted on his first book contract when he was a clerk at Elliott Bay Bookstore. Oh, my God. And <laughs> three books later, three children later, uh-huh. law school later. Wow. He had actually become a partner in a Seattle law firm, was a volunteer lawyer for the arts, was the chairman of the Board of Volunteer Lawyers, and teaching an art law course at my very law school where I had taught. Uh, although when I was there, we didn't have the luxury of having an art law course because it was extraordinarily rare yeah. for art law courses to be given in law schools. That That's amazing. <laughs> Well, I feel like art law is still, you know, not that many schools have it. I know I went when I went to Ohio State for law school. I mean, we had an excellent program, but even we don't believe had art law when I went. And that was in I graduated in 07. Um, So how do you get involved in art law? I mean, you mentioned volunteer lawyers for the arts. Um, if you're a lawyer and you're interested in the arts, how else do you get involved in well, that? Well, I think I should mention, too, that the field, when you said there aren't very many um, schools that have art law, the number, as, as there's more and more money mm-hmm. in the field, the number of art lawyers, as is the case with all lawyers in different fields, comes out of the of woodwork. Course. <laughs> and the field of art law originally started, because you asked me what does an art lawyer do, originally yeah. it started to give a particular focus to the issues of creative people, be they performing artists Mm -hmm. or visual artists or writers, a particular interest in, and particularly with visual arts and and, uh, collection, a focus to traditional areas of law, such as commercial law, trust and estates law, contracts, copyrights, that didn't really focus specifically on the needs of the performer, the visual artist, or the collector on these fields. So that was the initial fuel for for creating a specific discipline of art law. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, for example, commercial law is now is now the the field for art lawyers that has blossomed into the areas that deal with international transactions and oh. work works of art mm-hmm. um, commercial litigators are the are the lawyers who began litigating all the holocaust cases uh, yes, that's a huge area. A huge yeah. area, but they were commercial litigators first uh, and foremost, and it then makes sense. it developed yeah. into that. I myself uh, am very much involved in in cultural heritage, which is uh, a very important part of uh, of art law now, absolutely. dealing with looted antiquities, mm-hmm. and again, it's part of commercial law with a specific focus. And uh-huh. uh, an area where law schools may be focusing, if they're not focusing on art law specifically, I've taught, for example, in the architecture school at oh. Columbia, um, one or two classes uh-huh. on sustainable development and cultural heritage or World Bank funding and cultural heritage or uh, stolen art and, and the issues in in uh, in dealing with uh, stolen art. Um, I've also represented certain uh, original owners, uh, such as countries, in trying to recover oh, wow. looted antiquities. Yeah. I mean, you see it on the news practically yes, every week exactly. about this. And yeah. I'm very much involved with a wonderful organization called the Antiquities Coalition out of Washington, D.C., that's made major inroads in dealing with the illicit traffic mm-hmm. uh, in antiquities, particularly from um, Iraq and Syria and the oh. specific uh, problems dealing with this, including legislation that was passed by um, in, of our very dysfunctional Congress. They managed to get legislation passed and agreed to by both the Senate 
and the uh, Congress that dealt specifically with enforcing UN resolutions dealing with looted antiquities from um, Syria and Iran. Oh, wow. I'm sorry, not Iran, Iraq. Iraq. Iran is extraordinarily protective of its cultural heritage, mm. I might say. Yes, but not surprising. <laughs> um, the reason that there's been so much uh, movement in that area and uh -huh. why I'm actually doing a lot of it and why the UN is interested in mm -hmm. it, for example, is that it has been tied to terrorist finance. Oh. And it's that link that has made uh, cultural heritage protection a focus of, of our own government and of homeland security because of the terrorist link. And that's why the Security Council, for the first time, heard the head of UNESCO uh, address it and pass this legislation or the, a Security Council resolution mm -hmm. that was then implemented by the United States if it had not been for the link between terrorism and money laundering. Oh and looted antiquities, it wouldn't have happened. It, w it wouldn't oh. have gone to the level of the Security Council, which only deals with matters of peace and security. Oh, so how does that work? Was it they, they were arguing or they've been arguing that the antiquities were sold to fund terrorism? Exactly. Oh. And there's, th there is documentation that, uh, that they found just as documentation that they found in Geneva established the looting of antiquities from Italy, uh, the documentation they found when they the the forces in uh, Iraq um, and Syria mm -hmm. took over ISIS strongholds, they were able to find actually merchant receipts. Um, there's a whole antiquities branch of ISIS that's very regulated. Oh. That brings in allegedly a lot of revenue, um, from the sale of these antiquities oh. and yeah. the theft and sale of them. So while there's a public front mm -hmm. to ISIS, which is Palmyra in Syria or the beheading of that wonderful yeah. archaeologist who had been so devoted because he wouldn't reveal where the things are. There's oh that God. promotional aspect of it. There's the commercial aspect, which they <laughs> don't <knew>? tell you about, <laughs> which is, you know, that they have a whole, it's not just because these are heathen images. There's right. a whole storehouse of, oh my God. of stuff that they, well, they need money, that. right? So, so that's, yeah. that is that the field of art law now has changed so much and oh. encompasses so much. And of course, with the, um, the tremendous rise in the art, art as a commodity and as an mm -hmm. investment, yeah. all these other people are getting into art law that were never art lawyers, bankers, mm -hmm. secured financing, all these other areas. So oh, yes. Art law may now be at Ohio, in Ohio because it's raising its head in so many different manifestations yes. that you yes. don't know what courses are going to be considering as examples, uh, secure transactions, uh, yeah, international that's so trade. All right, Ohio State, there's a suggestion for you <laughs> if you don't already have it yes. <laughs> in other law schools. Um, well, that that's really fascinating. So, Barbara, I know you've done a lot of writing and speaking on these issues. Where can readers find more information on what you've written and where you've spoken? Well, we have a publication section on my website, which is www.hoffmanlawfirm.org. Okay. A book that I edited and put together, which I'm very proud of, is in widespread circulation and, and actually is in most libraries, published by Cambridge University Press, and it's called Art and Cultural Heritage, Law Policy and Practice. Mm -hmm. And this book is a collection of 80 chapters written by experts. And unlike my practice, which focuses on 
providing services to the individual, whether it be in copyright or estate planning, foundations, etc. This one doesn't really focus on, quote, art law for the artist or the, uh, the collector or the, or, or entertainment industry. It focuses really on cultural heritage issues. And, um, uh, what the book set out to do was to change the discussion in, in that field with the Holocaust lawyers and the, cultural property lawyers, the ones who thought everything should be free and were against the source nations and the people claiming they wanted a free international trade in antiquities. All the speakers were always mostly, uh, you're mostly, uh, from the United States, um, commercial litigators and lawyers and what the book set out to do was to present a different cast of characters mm-hmm. and introduce them into the discussion. So the first essay in the book um, is is an essay written by an indigenous tribal leader in the Sierra Madre Mountains wow. called The Law of Say. And... Um, it's not a pun, but since the book is aimed at art and cultural heritage practitioners, lawyers, and other people, it is a legal book, art, you know, art and cultural heritage law policy and practice. Right. The first chapter is the law of say, which is based on the creation myth of a tribe in the Sierra Madre Mountains, oh which was translated for me by a man called Alan Herrera, who had been studying this particular tribe for many, many years in wow. the mountains of Colombia. So it's meant to show that the way in which we look at commodities or mm-hmm. property is very different if you're a Westerner. Uh, than if you are a Khashoggi in the Sierra Madre Mountains. Wow. And it shows the importance of ancestors and context and that the concept of property really is based on a legal web. And our definition of property is not necessarily the one that's important to so many people. And then there are many more essays in the book. Uh-huh. A lot by Italians who are very much pro cultural heritage protection for obvious reasons. I, yes, I can see that. <laughs> and uh, it's used now by many people in uh, in undergraduate or grad programs, not necessarily law or mm-hmm. planning programs or architecture programs. Oh, so wow. that book is available from Cambridge and, and on demand. It's in paperback okay. as well. Or you heard it here. Go out and buy it. <laughs> that's right. I'm not retiring on my royalties. I can tell you that. But I th- people seem to think it's a good book. And then my other things are are, are my other articles that we, we published are online. And I'm currently writing an art law blog, uh, which is being set up. But the individual articles are on my website, and I also publish for One Art Nation which is um, a, a network of, of art interest, an art-interested community out of Canada. It can be found online. But my uh, writing is under the name of The um, Art Lawyer's Diary. The Art Lawyer's Diary. And it focuses on the interaction between art and law and politics and oh, under the symbol that... Art plus law equals culture. Yes, I I very much agree with that. <laughs> As you know, Barbara, my mother's an artist, which is where you know yeah. my own interest in this comes up, and how we met and. Um, anyway, as we as we head toward as we sprint towards the end of our conversation here, in keeping with the theme of um, 
the name of this podcast, which I call Entering the Bar, because I think I told you it's my favorite little joke, is it should have been called Entering the Bar, not Passing the Bar, because we we often do a bit of drinking at social functions, you know. Um, do you have any funny stories around, um, you know, anyone driving you to drink? Or I know you told you mentioned something when you were a civil rights activist that was kind of um, a great well, anecdote. Well, two things. One, quickly, uh, I did... Uh, in Seattle represent somebody, uh, at a planning, a planning board, uh, hearing and unfortunately didn't know she was an alcoholic. And <gasps> that was a, a fairly <laughs> scary ride. But oh my. other than that, I've had, uh, some interesting bar related stories. I did, uh, represent, um, a waitress who was a server at the Heisman Trophy for the New York Athletic Club in a sex discrimination case uh, about the fact that there were only male waiters who were given the opportunity to serve at the Heisman Trophy, but even more humorous in some ways because it was... um, It it, it was a surprise to the... um, to the defendants, uh, I represented uh, two women who uh, were denied drinks at the Hotel Pierre uh-huh. uh, at the bar. And they had filed a complaint with uh, the city of New York, the Human Rights Commission. And I, at that time, was representing that commission as, as a corp counsel. Uh-huh. And unbeknownst, so a complaint was filed. Uh-huh. And at that time, the Hotel Pierre refused to serve women at the bar on the theory that they were quite near Central Park uh-huh. and that any woman who came in and sat at the bar obviously must be a hooker. Oh, oh my. When <laughs> for was a high price <laughs> trick. In, it was, in fact, in 1975. Oh, my. <laughs> and so the hotel, they filed this complaint. Uh-huh. And, of course, the Hotel Pierre uh, ultimately learned uh, through in this lawsuit that these alleged hookers were, uh-huh. in fact, two lawyers. Oh, boy. <laughs> one worked with the district attorney's office, and one was in private practice. And that they were actually part of a sting uh, for the, uh, New York, the American Civil Liberties <laughs> Union Women's Project, which I believe at that time was headed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, my goodness. But uh, that, of course, came out in the hearing, mm-hmm. uh, to, much to the chagrin of the Hotel Pierre, <laughs> who sure. was represented by the author of the leading treatise on hotel law, who spoke on, uh, who taught at Cornell School of Hotel Management. And, of course, we prevailed. Of course, yeah. And it was found to be sex discrimination, and the Hotel Pierre had to pay damages, but also had to stop the practice of refusing to serve women at the bar. But I was quoted uh, after Mr. Sherry was quoted about uh, the fact that they had no um, bad intent, that their only goal was to protect women and to have Mm -hmm. a decent uh, establishment, I responded that, you know, the days of of putting women on a pedestal, which is in fact a cage, are gone, Mr. Sherry. (laughs) Women can drink at the bar, including lawyers. (laughs) Never mess with a woman lawyer. (laughs) So that's the end of that story. I love it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) That's a great story. So, and um, I hear that your your theme song, and that's what we played at the beginning of this, is uh, Ride of the Valkyries. You know. <laughs> and I won't say any more about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that I do identify okay. with it. 
So, Barbara, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast today. Um, do you have any parting words for, for up-and-coming lawyers? Well, I thank you very much uh, for doing this um, and reaching out. And if it has been helpful uh, to people who are interested in the field, both substantively and also enticement to enter the field, I'm delighted. I would say that I very, very much enjoy doing what I do. And everybody should, if you really want to be an art lawyer, follow your passion and do it. Uh, that's the same for anything else that you do. That's great advice. Well, Barbara, thank you again. And you've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And that's a wrap. You can always check us out at enteringthebar.com. As a reminder, all opinions on this show are made in our personal capacity and don't reflect the views of our employers. Many thanks to those who have provided use of their work through the Creative Commons licenses. This episode has featured No Peddler Song with Amy and Colmaja from their album Corn Smugglers and sounds from freesound.org with thanks to users Escort Marius, B.H. Weber, and Leander Stat and Tunis. You've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. <laughs>